0: Let me ask you to open up your Bibles. Let's come together to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, in chapter 1. Last Sunday, we gave an introduction to this second book of the Bible. And today, we begin to work our way verse by verse through this book. In this particular series, we're working through chapters 1-1. Uh, through 15. Now today we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 1. But before we read them, uh, let me remind you of something we said last Sunday. In the Hebrew, the opening word of Exodus is the word, and. The book literally begins, and these are the names. And so Exodus is not the beginning of a new story. It is rather continuing a story that has already begun. Exodus picks up right where Genesis left off. And so where were we when we finished Genesis some months ago? You'll remember that Jacob had received the promise from God that his family would become the great nation that God had promised to his grandfather, Abraham. Jacob received a new name from God, the name Israel. And this man received the promise that his sons would become the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then, through amazing Providential circumstances, Jabes, Jacob's son, Joseph, ended up becoming the second most powerful person in the ancient world. He became something akin to the prime minister of Egypt, he was second only to Pharaoh himself. Now, when we left Genesis, Jacob had died. And his entire family, the family of Jacob, the family of Israel, is now living in the northeastern corner of Egypt in a place called Goshen. And they are under the special protection of the Pharaoh because of Joseph. The very last verses of Genesis tell us about Joseph's death. And Joseph speaks about a day when the nation of Israel will leave the land of Egypt and go back to Canaan, the promised land. Uh, Joseph tells his family, he says, God will visit you. And he places his family under an oath that when that day comes, they will take his bones back to Canaan and bury him there. Now, as we come to Exodus, it should be with these prophetic words of Joseph ringing in our ears. He told his family, God will visit you. Certainly, that prophecy has a sense of foreboding to it. There's a sense that something bad is going to happen to Israel. There's going to need to be a reason for God to visit them and and to exercise power on their behalf. But Joseph's prophecy is mainly a joyful word of promise. God is going to keep His word to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Israel is not going to stay in Egypt. But in God's time, they are going to be brought by God back into the promised land. And the land is going to be given to them as their home. No longer will they be pilgrims and strangers in Canaan as in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it will be their home. Now, that's where the story of Genesis ends and Exodus begins. So let's begin reading in chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. In these seven verses, we learn about the flourishing of Israel. We are told that the first generation of Israel in Egypt was 70 people. Literally, the Hebrew says 70 souls. This is how the nation of Israel began in Egypt, as 70 souls. But now, after 400 years, the number of Israelites has grown tremendously. We are told that these 70 people have become an exceedingly strong people, that God is creating a nation out of them. Now, what does this passage have to do with us? Well, remember, national Israel in the Old Testament was a visible picture of God's true people. His spiritual people, those who know Him by faith. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that God's dealings with national Israel were written down for our benefit. We are to learn from God's dealings with national Israel in the Old Testament how God deals with us as the church, as His people. And I would propose to you that the same truths that we see in this passage about how Israel grew and developed are truths that apply to Christ's church and how the church in this world today is growing and developing. In other words, don't look at this passage and think, well, this is just telling us about an earthly nation in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. No, this passage teaches us about how God builds a kingdom, This passage is teaching us about how Christ builds a kingdom, which is exactly what He is doing in our day, a kingdom that we as Christians are a part of. And so I want to use three headings this morning to help us see what is taught in this passage for us. As it happens, each one of these headings begins with the letter F. And I promise I didn't do that on purpose. Here are three words that we're going to hang our hats on This morning, first, the word foundation, second, the word fruitfulness, and then third, the word faithfulness. Are you ready? Let's begin with foundation. Imagine that you and I are going to build any sort of structure that we want to last. Certainly, our first concern is to lay a foundation for that structure. If something is going to stand the test of time, if it's going to weather the elements that come against it, it must have a firm foundation. And so here in our country, we talk about our founding fathers. These are the men who laid that foundation for our nation through their writings, through their speeches, through their organizational and political activities. Supremely, the founding fathers were the men who laid a foundation for our nation through the Declaration of Independence, and particularly the U.S. Constitution. Our country stands on our Constitution. It is the foundation of this land, and as that document is corrupted or its authority is ignored, our nation will find itself weakened and in peril, If we have a weak foundation, we should not expect this nation to last. Well, what was the foundation that God gave to the kingdom of Israel? Well, later we will see that He gave them a constitution, a constitution given to them at Mount Sinai in the midst of thunder and lightning and fire on the mountain. But it's in this passage, right here at the beginning of Exodus, that we see the sons of Jacob as the founding fathers of Israel. You you hear me reading off the names of these these sons, right? Uh, Reuben, um, Judah, and Levi, and they just sound like names. But in the ears of ancient Israel, this was like reading George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. These were the men from which their nation came. These 12 men in this passage were the foundation stones on which the nation of Israel were built. Remember, Israel would be a nation of 12 tribes. We have in our nation 50 states. Well, their nation was 12 family tribes, each coming from one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob, right before he died, pronounced a prophecy "...upon each one of these men, and the prophecy that he gave them fit the character of each one of those men. And each prophecy that Jacob spoke not only extended to that son of his, but to the tribe that would come from that son. Interestingly, the tribes providentially took on the personality of their founding father." When God made His covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, He did so with an Israel of 12 tribes, 12 families. In fact, Moses will set up 12 pillars around Mount Sinai, a pillar for each tribe. And then He will call the tribes together, each around its own pillar. And He will sprinkle the blood upon them, and God will make a covenant with them, and they will become a nation. When the high priest went into the holy of holies the most holy place on planet earth at that time when he went into the holy of holies to make intercession for the for the nation of Israel he didn't do so with one stone on his breastpiece he went in there with 12 stones on his breastpiece he was there before God to represent this nation of 12 tribes each coming from these sons of Jacob so who were these men That were the foundation of Israel. Who were these men that became the the fathers of these tribes? Well, first and foremost, they were ordinary, sinful, but saved men. The, The founding fathers of Israel were not great thinkers or writers or scientists or poets. Uh, many of the founding fathers of our land were uh, excellent in their skills, and their speaking abilities, and their thinking abilities, not so for Israel. Their founding fathers were twelve ordinary men. Uh, most of them had lived lives that included some terrible sins. Uh, most of these brothers had been involved in the attack upon Joseph, being filled with envy and hatred towards Joseph. They were involved in selling him into slavery, deceiving their father, lying to their father's face about what had happened to Joseph. Reuben slept with one of his father's wives. Judah was disloyal to his promises, and he slept with a woman he believed to be a prostitute. These founding fathers of Israel were not stalwarts of morality, principled men of godly character. No, they were men who had lived Some rather unpleasant lives. But by God's grace and through His providence, their sin against Joseph became the means that God used to bring them to salvation. Had they never sold Joseph into slavery, they themselves would never have been physically saved from the famine that came upon the land. But even more than that, they likely would have never come to trust Their father's God. It was through their dealings with Joseph, as we saw many months ago, that these hardened men saw their hearts begin to melt. So that by the end of the book of Genesis, they have taken on their father's God as their God. Who were the founding fathers of Israel? They were trophies of God's amazing grace. Here is a message that Israel would need to hear Again and again and again. How often in Israel's history do we see her turning away from her God? How often in the pages of the Old Testament do we see Israel trampling God's commands, living in immorality? How important it was for Israel to continue to look back to her founding fathers and to remember oh, yes, our God is a God of grace, a God of mercy a God of forgiveness for those who will humble themselves and turn to Him. Now, Mount Hermon, we should not miss that when Jesus began to build a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the church, He chose 12 disciples to begin with. He had many more followers. In fact, he likely took a group of 70. Isn't that interesting? We're told that the number of his close followers in the Gospels was 70, just like the same number of people that started out in Egypt were 70. But Jesus took out of those 70, he chose for himself 12 men that are later called in the New Testament the foundation of the church. And like the sons of Jacob in the Old Testament, These founders of the church of Christ were ordinary men. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. And like the sons of Jacob, these men were sinners. I mean, we remember their constant bickering, we remember them vying for position who can be closest to Jesus, who can sit at his right hand in in heaven. We remember how these disciples sought to keep the sick away from Jesus. How they hindered the little children from coming to Jesus. We remember how almost all of them deserted Christ at His crucifixion. And yet by the Spirit of God, these men became leaders in the Christian church. They became men of courage and dignity men through whom the church was established. I've always found it interesting that when John sees the vision of the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, he says the walls of the city have twelve foundations. And on each one of the foundation stones is written the name of one of the twelve apostles. But also, the city has twelve gates and written on each gate is one of the names of the tribes of Israel. What is the lesson for us? The lesson for us is not that we are to idolize these men in the Old Testament or the New. It's not that we are to worship these men or to pray to these men, as some people do. But we should thank God for them and we should remember how each one of them points us to the grace of God. And... Since the apostles are our founding fathers as the church of Christ, we should pay attention to the apostles' teaching. America has her founding fathers. Ancient Israel had her founding fathers. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has her founding fathers, the apostles of our Lord. And through them, Christ laid the foundation for the church. And here is our sure foundation. Here is the solid ground beneath our feet. It is the message of Christ, once and for all delivered through His apostles to us. And so let us give heed to the apostles' teaching in our Bibles. There's one more point to make here as well. In these twelve men, here in Exodus chapter 1, we see great diversity as well as unity. The unity is obvious. These are 12 families that all come from one man, and together they make up one nation. These these 12 tribes are going to form one kingdom. But don't miss how different these men were. Don't miss how different their tribes became from one another. Just as a reminder, we saw back in the book of Genesis that some of these tribes would become famous for their fighting men, for their warriors. Judah's tribe would become known as the tribe of royalty. Levi's tribe would become the tribe of priests. Asher's tribe would be known for the finer things of life, their cooking, their delicacies. Naphtali's tribe was known for its musical skill and for its poetry. You see, each tribe was different from the others. It had its own personality. And yet, together, they formed one kingdom. This is exactly how it is with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. So many different people from so many different cultures and so many different languages are brought together into one family. The kingdom of Christ is diverse and yet one. And we have something of that even here in this room. We bring together into one body our own strengths and our own weaknesses, our own personalities, our own tendencies, our own gifts and abilities, our own interests and hobbies. And we are different from one another. And yet God has brought us together into one body as part of one kingdom. God is glorified in our differences. And God is glorified in our unity together. So that's foundation. We see the foundation of the nation of Israel in these opening verses of Exodus. Now let's look at fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. And this passage teaches us that God caused Israel to become abundantly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. Uh, verse 7, note verse 7. It is written in a way that helps us to understand that the growth of Israel was not Mere natural growth. Israel was not simply multiplying the way most families or most nations multiply. There was a special blessing of God that was upon Israel in Egypt. Babies were being born everywhere. Verse 7 literally says this in the Hebrew. Listen to how it sounds in the Hebrew. As for the Israelites, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. It's repetition upon repetition upon repetition to make the point. There's a a rhythm to the verse, there's a rhyme to the verse. It's Israel was growing in a way that was not normal. God was doing something, and how fast and how greatly this nation was multiplying. Now, surely you see the parallel between these early days of the nation of Israel and the early days of the church of Christ. What happened in the first four centuries of the church of Christ? Just like the first four centuries of the nation of Israel. The church was exploding. Spiritual babies were being born everywhere. In the the early days of the church, Christianity went from being a few people in an upper room on the day of Pentecost to a growing religious sect being persecuted by Jewish and Roman authorities to the predominant religion of the Roman Empire. To this day, there is no earthly explanation for how the church of Christ grew so incredibly fast in such a short amount of time. The primary thing to note here is that it is God who gives or withholds fruitfulness. It is God who has the power to bless or to withhold blessing. God is the explanation of why Israel was growing so fast in Egypt. Psalm 105, 23, 24, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, And the Lord made His people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Friends, whenever there is fruitfulness of any kind, it is because of God. He holds the power to bless and to curse. He has the power to rain down showers of blessing and to shut up the skies for a season. And so I ask you, are you longing for greater fruitfulness in your life? Are you longing for more patience, more kindness, more goodness in your life? Then God is the one to turn to. Ask. Seek. Knock. Be persistent. He has everything at His disposal. He is willing to give to those who seek Him earnestly. Have you been longing for greater fruitfulness in your workplace? Have you been longing maybe for more clients, more projects, more sales, more income? Certainly you should not want these things for selfish purposes. But if you seek these things for the care of your family and the glory of God, then that is a noble desire. But it is God who can make you fruitful. You must entrust your work to God. You must go about your work in a way that honors God, and you must be on your knees praying for God to make your work fruitful. Let us pray to God to give us fruitfulness in our parenting and in our grandparenting. It is God who opens the womb to begin with, and it is God who can make our efforts to parent well or grandparent well either effective or ineffective. If we act in pride and self-sufficiency, we should expect God to be against us. But if we humble ourselves to pray for His blessing, we should expect Him to draw near and to do wondrous things. Mount Hermon is a church. Don't we long for more fruitfulness? Don't we long to see these seats full? Don't we long to, to see this baptistry filled But we long for worship services where the presence of God is felt in power and where radical transformation is taking place in our lives? If we long for this as a church, we cannot rely on ourselves to make this happen. You and I do not hold the keys to fruitfulness. God does. And so I ask you, before you came here this morning, Did you pray for God's blessing upon the preaching of God's word? Did you pray for God to bless the worship service? Did you ask God to send visitors our way? Did you ask God to come in power and to save souls and to transform hearts? And if we're not asking, should we be surprised that we're not receiving? please don't look to me or to Pastor Merle to bring about fruitfulness in this church. I have no ability to make a sermon powerful. I could turn to devices and rhetorical techniques to try and draw people in, but that would not bring about true fruit. What we need is God's Spirit to come upon us as a church, and to make us fruitful by His blessing. And God's Spirit tends to come in response to the crying out of His people. Are we turning to God and praying for fruitfulness? Now, Mount Hermon, just as God miraculously built the nation of Israel, I don't want you to miss that He is right now miraculously building His church. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ, and Jesus is right now building His church, and quite frankly, He's building it today like never before. Let me ask you a question. When we read in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people were saved in one day, Does that leave you astounded? Well, let me tell you something that should be astounding. You are living in days in which Christ is blessing the church in ways that far surpass the opening days after Pentecost. According to one source, the Joshua Project, on average, 1,600 people decide to follow Christ every hour of every day. More than 38,000 people will profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before this day is done. On average, 160,000 people hear the gospel for the first time every day. Think about that. Every 24 hours, 160,000 more people hear the good news for the first time. In the year 1800, in the year 1800, those who had never heard the gospel made up three-fourths of the world's population. In the year 1800, only one in four people on planet Earth had heard the gospel. Today, only 28 percent have not heard. In other words, the statistics have been reversed. Now three-fourths of the world has heard, and only one-fourth has not. We live in a day of fruitfulness. We live in a day in which Jesus is building His church and multiplication is happening at astounding rates. But lest we think the work is near done, let me remind you that 28% of the world's population still represents 2 billion people. 2 billion people still unreached. 2 billion people who still have not heard. Finally, let us consider the theme of faithfulness. Faithfulness in this passage. What is happening in these seven verses? Is God giving the nation of Israel a foundation? Absolutely. Is He causing the nation of Israel to be fruitful? Absolutely. But there's something else happening here. God is keeping His promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In Genesis 15, verse 5, God brought Abraham outside of his tent. And he said, Abraham, look up at the sky. Number the stars. Count them. Tell me how many stars you see, if you're able to number them. And then God said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. Abraham did not deserve this promise. He too had been a great sinner, a pagan, a worshiper of the moon god. But God chose to save Abraham and to bring him out of darkness. And in free mercy, he gave this promise to Abraham. God took it upon himself out of his sheer mercy to make this promise to Abraham. From you, Abraham, and your barren wife, though you are very old and you are without a son, I am going to make a great nation. In Genesis 17, verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. It's exactly the same words used in Exodus 1-7 to describe what God did. The exact same words. Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Exodus 1, 7, He made them exceedingly fruitful. Genesis 26, verse 4, God speaks to Abraham's son Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In Genesis 28, 14, God goes to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And so Exodus 1 teaches us that our God is a God who keeps His promises. He is faithful to do what He has said He will do. I don't suppose I need to tell you just how important this particular attribute of God really is. It does not matter how good or how loving or how strong God is if He is not faithful. If God cannot be trusted to do what He has said, He will do. You and I are in a mess. We are placing our trust in Jesus because of a promise. A new covenant promise that all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We are taking God at His Word. We haven't seen heaven yet. We're trusting God's Word. And if we find that our God is unfaithful, then when we stand before God on the last day, we're going to be in for a terrible surprise. We are risking everything on our belief that our God is a faithful God who keeps His promises. Listen to A.W. Tozer. He says, Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as He is faithful will His covenant stand and His promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that He is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. The tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged may all find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will ever be true to His pledged Word. The hard-pressed sons of the covenant may be sure that He will never remove His loving kindness from them, nor will He ever suffer His faithfulness to fail." Mount Hermon we're told in Revelation that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and and John saw this as the Lord Jesus coming back riding on a white horse and John says He bears two names. Do you remember what those two names are? Faithful and true. Too many scoff at our beliefs. Many say we are foolish for believing the gospel, believing that the skies are going to split open and the Lord Jesus return. Just as Satan urged Eve to doubt, you are being urged by the devil. You are being tempted by the world and your flesh to doubt the truthfulness of the Christian faith, to doubt that you can really be saved and go to heaven. But, friends, you worship a God who cannot. Lie. You worship a God who cannot break His promises without ceasing to be God, causing the entire fabric of the universe to unravel. Mount Hermon, the next time you are tempted to doubt God's promises, preach to your heart and preach these words from Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You know the next line. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. What is your soul's portion this morning? What is it that you are trusting in to find peace for your heart In whom are you trusting concerning your future and the things to come after your death? Can you say with sincerity that you are hoping in God and you are trusting His promises? Have you taken God at His word and are you believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven? Others will fail you and you will fail yourself. A million times, but your God will never fail. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. He was faithful to Jacob. And he will prove himself faithful to you. On the day the Lord Jesus will return with those names faithful and true, will you be ready? If that day were to be today, That Christ returns. Would you be ready? And would you be counted among God's people? If not, you need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to turn from your sins. And you need to trust Him for your salvation. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. If you want the promises of God to be yours, you must have Christ. That's how they become a yes for you. Dear Christians in this room, let us praise God for his faithfulness. Let us pray for more fruitfulness. And let us stay committed to the foundation of the Apostles' teaching with Christ himself as our cornerstone we to close by saying it a little differently. May God keep us on the one true foundation of His Son and His Word. May God bless us with His fruitfulness. May God be faithful to fulfill every promise He has made to us. He will. Let's go to Him right now. and Let's ask Him to bless us. Let's pray.